Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Pickaliscus. The drug discovery and development process can be an arduous endeavor, to say the least. Manufacturers spend considerable resources and money chasing down potential candidate molecules in the process of creating a potential new therapeutic, often resulting in abandoning the candidate in the very later stages of development due to minor factors that might have been overlooked at the onset of the discovery process. Thankfully, there have always been those investigators who sought to merge the fields of mathematics and biology while taking advantage of advanced computing algorithms to help inform and de-risk drug discovery decisions and streamline the development pipeline. This mechanistic modeling approach is helping to transform drug R&D projects by giving pharma and biotech companies the vital information they need to make the important decisions in a drug's path towards clinical success. In this GenCast, I sat down with an expert in mechanistic modeling to discuss the specifics of this approach and how companies are employing the technology successfully. Let's jump into the discussion. Welcome, everyone, to this latest GenCast episode. I'd like to welcome our special guest today, Dr. John Burke, who is the co-founder, president, and CEO of Applied Biomath, a New England-based services and software solutions company that is using mechanistic modeling to guide their pharma and biotech partners in accelerating and de-risking the drug discovery and development process. Welcome, John. Good morning, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, John, maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit more about your background and how you came about to start a company like Applied Biomath. I'm going to assume you want the short version. I was always interested in how patterns occurred in nature. If you look out, in a lot of ways, trees look like bushes, look like rivers, look like uh, capillaries, look like your veins. And I was just always fascinated how, how that happened. And clearly I'm not the first or the last person to be interested in that, but I wanted to go into mathematical biology to help understand that. I loved it. I loved working on dynamical systems, trying to understand how cells and tissues make decisions. After that, I was very fortunate to get a, a to be accepted in, into MIT for my postdoctoral research with Doug Laufenberger in the biological engineering department. And what I was even more fortunate about is um, during the interview process, I asked him if I could consult on the side and Doug was more than positive about it. And he stated, and I'm paraphrasing, there's just a lot of trained PhDs out there and there aren't enough professorships. It's an engineering department and he encourages people to think about uh, industry. And at the time, I was consulting for a lot of large companies and small companies, biotechs and pharma, a few software companies. I started to really get, get an idea of what kind of excellent research was going inside of pharma and biotech that you just don't typically see in publications because they don't typically publish what they're doing. I was getting excited about using mathematics to help patients at the end of the day to make better drugs, to make better decisions. So after MIT, uh, I was very fortunate to go to the systems biology department uh, and Peter Sorger's group at Harvard Medical School, uh, where I was co-scientific director of the Cell Decision Process Center, and I continued to consult and network. And really, that changed my world. Because of my consulting, I decided to go into industry instead of being a professor. Uh, one of the places I was interested in, I was very fortunate to get a job at Merrimack Pharmaceuticals. 
But precisely because of my consulting while I was at MIT, I was offered a position to start the systems biology modeling group at Boehringer Ingelheim. And that was very successful. We helped, in my opinion, we grew, we helped drive a lot of important decisions, worked on a lot of important projects. And I was like, every company in the world should be doing this. Uh, not just the richest pharma. Drug development, research and development is, is expensive. It's error prone. It's long. It's highly regulated. I was figuring that mathematics should really be brought to bear uh, as an engineering discipline in the R&D process, just like it is in every other discipline in making better cars or better roads or better computers or better chemical processes. Uh, again, I'm, I wasn't the first, nor am I the last to think of this, but I've had a pretty unique road to... Uh, start with my co-founders, Joshua Apgar and Andrew Sutherland, uh, Applied Biomath. And we're in our ninth year now. We have over 60 employees. We've worked on over 200 different projects, over 85 different partners, almost uh, $4.7 million in, in government grant funding through SBIRs, which is very competitive. We're doing hard research. We're doing hard work. It's fun, but we're, I really do believe we're changing one project at a time, one mind at a time, the R&D paradigm in pharma and biotech. So it's been a fun ride thus far, and I'm looking forward to the next 10 years. Did that answer your question? It did very much. Thanks. I appreciate that. So, John, in, in my opening, I talked about how the company is using mechanistic modeling. Maybe you can explain for the gen audience a little bit more about what mechanistic modeling is and why you think it's important for drug discovery. So mechanistic modeling, I'm going to take a step back and talk about, let's say, traditional or empirical PKPD or pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. And this is in the vernacular or, or very briefly, what the drug is, how the drug's behaving in your body, how it's being cleared and what it does to your body. And it typically is curve fitting to preclinical data, uh, maybe mouse data, and then maybe using some in vitro data for thinking about some line of efficacy or safety. And we, then we use allometric scaling to make some kind of human dose prediction. It's a powerful tool. It's an important tool. Um, translation from preclinical to clinical is, is difficult. It's not trivial, but allometric scaling can miss a lot. The biological processes in humans uh, compared to other species isn't just a function of, let's say, height, sex, weight, surface area. Mechanism really matters, like turnover rates of cells, numbers of cells, numbers of sites per cell. In a population of patients of a certain indication, there are distributions of, for example, ligands or cells and in another indication that those distributions might be different. So a similar biological mechanism of action, but those ranges are different. And these, the properties of your drugs or your medicines really matter on what indication you go through. So back to PKPD, typically you take your most recent data set and make your forward prediction. When we have mechanism, we can start much earlier. We can be more forward looking. We can integrate more types of data. So by the time you get to IND or even in the clinic, you can make better predictions because you're incorporating more hypotheses, more data, and you're filling in the blanks of unknowns. So I'm going to take a step back and maybe use biologics as an example, where very early on before you even work on a project, you can consider the K on and K off of a biologic uh, maybe for each arm, maybe look at affinity, maybe look at effector function. And you can start scanning over these drug properties in, in the computer, including dose interval and dose amount, 
and then scan over all the possibilities on the biology side in the computer. And very quickly, you can start generating hypotheses as to what are the most critical drug parameters and biological parameters that impact the uncertainty and variability in human dose predictions. Thus, is this going to be an effective drug or not? So even very, very early on through the whole process, you can start making these predictions. And as you're generating data that's informed by the model predictions, by prioritizing these sensitive parameters, you can maybe reduce the number of experiments that you do or design them better. Or even if you are generating more data, there's a reason. So at the end of the day, you're making better IND predictions. Maybe you're getting to the clinic faster. Maybe you have a chance of making a best-in-class therapeutic because you have an idea of what optimal drug properties could be even early on before you go into the clinic. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. And so my follow-up question to that would be, you know, how do these mechanistic approaches then, uh, how are they different from the traditional approaches? And then specifically, how is applied biomass mechanistic modeling approach different? So with PKPD modeling, traditional PKPD modeling, you might take the most recent set of data in vitro, maybe a mouse model, and you're literally doing parameter estimation to fit, frankly, arbitrary parameters, and it's curve-fitting. And when you go from preclinical to clinical predictions, you might look at, for example, how big a mouse is, right? And then how does the PK look like in a mouse? And maybe you look at doing an experiment in a dog and how big is the dog relative to the mouse? Maybe you go into a non-human primate. How big is the sino or non-human primate, primate uh, compared to the other two species? And in some log space, logarithmic space, you're going to try to look for some dotted line that connects the mouse parameters to the dog parameters, for example, or rabbit or whatever, or non-human primates. Sometimes you skip all those other ones for ethical reasons, but you're trying to do a dotted line of some kind to the human. So you're extrapolating what humans could be. And then you're going to start doing some safety factors because phase one is all about safety. It can't be about uh, maybe testing proof of clinical concept and some rare and orphan indications or, or cancer for ethical reasons. But at the end of the day, we're trying to predict a safe starting dose. So there's some allometric scaling and then there's some safety factors. And sometimes you can start at a very low or homeopathic dose. Now with mechanistic modeling, we would include, for example, the K on and K off of the drug. Um, and of course, what we're talking about with biologics, you can do with small molecules, you can do with multi-specific biologics, you can do with ADCs, you can do with conditionally active biologics, you can do them with cell therapies, you can do it with gene therapies. It's just that the, the, for some of these other systems, the mechanism of action of the therapeutic or new medicine is much more complicated. But, but anyway, I go, I go back to the biologic. We try first maybe to understand uh, in vitro potency or function. So mathematically, we will set up the differential equations to match that in vitro data set as closely as possible to the real experimental system, like numbers of cells, sites per cell, if you're pre-incubating with a ligand or not, if you're activating the system. And then at the right time point, you're putting in the drug, and then maybe you're looking at a readout of function, whether it's maybe cytokine release or proliferation or death or, or whatever. And now we're getting an idea of maybe observed or more true affinity of the therapeutic and how that might relate to potency of this system. 
So we're getting a real response that's mechanistic. And the reason why that's important, instead of just using a concentration as a, a, a approach, is in real humans, as opposed to an in vitro or ex vivo system, parameters are different. So for example, the numbers of cells per unit volume are certainly different. There's more than one kind of cell. There are feedback loops, autocrine and paracrine signaling. There might be differences in expression of the target. So particular, if you're looking at T-cell engagers, you might be concerned about the E to T ratio. Right? You can model all of these things to help more mechanistically or semi-mechanistically translate from the in vitro into the human system. So now we have this first Lego or building block of mathematically modeling your in vitro ex vivo systems from first principles using primarily zero first and second order reactions. Sometimes you have to use other reactions, but we try to stick to zero first or zero first and second order reactions. We try to use minimal parameter fitting because we don't want to overfit the system and we want the simulations to be true and predictive. And then we take that system and then translate it to maybe a disease relevant model. So maybe some, some mouse model. And we know that mouse models are really furry test tubes and what works in a mouse might not work in a human, but again, we're trying to replicate mechanism. So again, without overfitting, we might put in the numbers of cells, the sites per cell. It's particular for what kind of route, uh, mouse or rat model uh, they might be, where we set up the system as close as possible and make predictions first, see how close we are and iterate. And then maybe if, if it's a biologic, we might do a similar type of modeling to predict and then recapitulate the information that we get from a non-human primate study. But now we have this single mathematical model where we can recapitulate mechanistically a lot of unknowns, right? So when we translate from that preclinical to clinical space, we have more certainty in our predictions as opposed to traditional approaches. We understand the risks mechanistically of the medicine, but also the biology. And we can try to understand the uncertainty and variability before we go into human. We can also incorporate competitor, published competitor, uh, preclinical, maybe even clinical data to help strengthen our predictions. Traditional modeling, PK, does, doesn't do any of this. It's just, let's take a data set and do a forward prediction. Where these mechanistic models through uncertainty analysis and, not, and, 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 and un, um, variability and uncertainty, we can start go translating forwards and backwards to think of things like what's best, best in class, what's the most important experiment, what's the most critical unknowns, how, how variable could a, could a clinical trial be. But then ultimately, because this is mechanistic, and then maybe we're helping to predict what's best in class by changing the new drug properties. Maybe we can prioritize experiments. So by the time we get to phase one, we potentially get there faster. We have a better, richer data set. We can now start communicating with the FDA and the IND what the variability, how variability and target expression or numbers of cells or feedback loops, how that can impact that safe starting dose and what could be efficacious and what's frankly too much drug. And, and this oftentimes can justify a higher starting dose when compared to traditional methods, because you're looking at things like target expression, you're looking at mechanistically or semi-mechanistically safety, you're looking at more accurate and precise predictions. And, um, you know, there you go. Right. And then after, after your, your phase one or your phase one, a, you now have a mechanistic model 
that you can now start incorporating your real human data to inform the model so you can have better, more accurate phase one, phase two predictions. So now maybe you can, you know, impact your dose escalation trials or maybe have better predictions for your recommended phase two. So in in, in general, it's more encompassing of the data. There's more fidelity and it's better predictions based on mechanism other than just, you know, extrapolation from a, a dotted line. Does that make sense? Very much. And so, well, thanks for that. I mean, there's a great background um, into mechanistic modeling. So I guess the, the, the million dollar question now is, you know, where in the pipeline does, you know, applied biomath get involved and, you know, where should mechanistic modeling be brought in? They typically come to us the first time if they've never worked with us before at that IND. They have a critical decision. They have timelines. They have to get this into the clinic. There's pressure, business pressure to do this. And they really need to have those dose predictions for the FDA. So typically that's where they work with us for the first time. I would argue the best time to work with us is right when that project starts, because oftentimes we'll find that if, so for example, with a bispecific immune cell, tumor cell engager, maybe their therapeutic index is too low right? Maybe their molecules are too potent or, or whatever, and they could have had a better molecule. So typically when a partner works with us a second time or an individual leaves a company that we worked with and they go somewhere else, we are brought into the pipeline much, much earlier, um, right? Almost as projects start where, you know, we've worked with some partners where they're interested in, let's say maybe 10 different drug concepts, some of them might be, you know, multi-specific or whatnot, but they might only have funding for two or three projects to get through phase one. On paper, all of these 10 drug concepts look equally exciting. We will come in and do that first round right at that new target stage and say, we're going to make the right model. It's going to be complex enough, but not too complex because you want to have a good ROI to quickly model those 10 drug concepts. And some of them, therapeutics or the new medicines will be easier to develop for whatever reasons. Maybe if you're looking at a bi-specific and you're looking at efficacy and safety, the affinities might be like a hundred picomolar binder or, or tighter, um, or maybe there's a biphasic curve, or maybe you know the half-life might be two weeks long or longer. Those could be easier to develop than let's say the next tier where you need like both of your arms have to be single picomolar binder or tighter, and you need a four week long half-life. And then there might be a third tier where it's like, you know what, as a function of the dosing regimen that you would like in the patient groups, you just can't make these. They're just, even under the best theoretical conditions, you just can't make a drug. And then on top of that, if you start looking at the uncertainty or variability uh, for each of, of these 10 drug concepts, some of them, there might be only one or two very sensitive model parameters that helps you focus on what experiment to do next, where maybe there's another tier where maybe you have 10 uncertain parameters that impact the uncertainty and variability of your human dose predictions. And then there might be a whole bunch that's like, man, they're all uncertain. Like we don't have confidence in the literature. We don't have confidence. We, we, we lack confidence because of the uncertainty. That's even more experiments, which is even more time and money. So, you know, when you cross-reference all of these analyses, we can say, you know, we're, we're maybe we're not sure which of these 10 drug concepts are going to be 
efficacious. But if you believe in mechanism of action and, and biophysics, maybe these two or three are going to be the easiest to develop, going to require the least number of experiments, and hopefully you can get to that IND faster. Maybe, maybe it can more likely to be best in class and you start prioritizing experiments mathematically. So right there, you've just increased, you know, your chance of success. And if you're lucky, maybe you start saving enough money to work on a third project, right? So right from the get-go, they should be doing this. And then for the, as the projects progress, uh, you can start adding relevant downstream biology. So you can start thinking about how to interpret your in vitro assays. A lot of these new mechanisms of action, you don't have these nice sigmoidal in vitro curves, whether dose response or whatnot, uh, or changing affinities. And that's because, you know, in gene therapy, cell therapies, by bi specific small molecule uh, protein degraders, targeted protein degraders, you can have these funky like plateaus or bell-shaped curves, or it's just so confusing. But by using these models simultaneously going forward and backwards predictions, you can see or interpret how these in vitro assays could impact your human dose predictions and what kind of human dose predictions working backwards do you need the in vitro assays look to help help you understand the experiments, design better experiments. And I would argue, start to think about how to use your in vitro assays to help with your, your lead identification, lead optimization or, or, or whatever process you're calling. And now, right? Now you have an idea of what's best in class. So you're now, hopefully you only do lead generation once or fewer times, or maybe you don't have, you can do fewer engineering or modifications of, of the medicine. As a next step, you start incorporating that mouse model and you start to really, you know, constrain your parameters and make better, better predictions. The experiment is designed more, I think, arguably better because you're constantly doing forwards and backwards translation and predictions across your experiments. And then maybe you incorporate your dose range finding study or GLP studies in, into your model, help with clinical candidate selection with the model, maybe even do a in silico differentiation analysis to say, at least in the computer, are you better than the competition? Not only now, but what might be the competition in, in five or 10 years. And if you're not going to be better, maybe you, maybe you don't go forward because you don't want to waste the time and money. If you are better, fantastic. How do you design that clinical trial? most precisely so you can test your, 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 your clinical concept in the clinic, show at least, you know, in small data sets that you could be better than the competition. Uh, like I said, maybe you get to the, you can justify a higher starting dose, but then after the clinic, you should still cont continue using, um, I mean, uh, after IND, you should still continue using these models because at, at some point you're going to want to use POP PK. And that's where you might use a, a standard PKPD model, but you're you have enough patients that you're starting to get distributions of these parameters. They are identifiable. You can start linking statistics to efficacy, but you need a lot of, because this turns into a statistics argument now, you need a lot of data. So until you're at that point, now you want to start thinking about a mechanistic POP-PK type model where you're looking with, informing with real clinical data, how could the distributions of these parameter sets uh, based on mechanism, how can you understand that uncertainty and variability to maybe design your phase 1B or define your phase 2 or an even launch, right? So really through the whole spectrum, I think anyone who uses mechanistic modeling 
has a competitive advantage. It helps you really think uh, and test hypotheses and generate hypotheses much more quickly, and it helps you focus. So, John, you said that you need uh, a lot of data, you know, for this. So, how much data do groups need to have at this stage for you to build the model? I wouldn't say you need. I don't think you need a lot more data. Typically, it's the same data that teams would generate anyway. We just might ask you to design the experiments a little differently. So for example, let's say you have an in vitro data and you have a bell-shaped curve and you make some forward predictions into mouse, your disease-relevant model, and you have some forward predictions into human. And you're like, you know what? There's, there's uncertainty and in some inflection point on the PD in, in, in the human. So let's say, for example, this is nanolipid particle delivery of, let's say, engineered message. You know, if you look at the PK of nanolipid particles, they're gone, right? They just, they just, they're just gone, right? That's, they're, they disappear quickly. They're going over the, through the whole body and being cleared. But there's downstream relevant biology where some of the nanolipid particle gets into uh, the cell it's supposed to go to, whether it's targeted or not, right? And we can talk about that. But s- some of the particles now get into the cell. A good chunk of them are being tagged for degradation. And then engineered message might might come out of the particle. Some of that is being cleared for, for degradation. But now the message is now altering protein synthesis. And that change in protein synthesis might change some cascade of disease concentrations of uh, a protein. And you want to be in a certain sweet spot where if you perturb it, not enough, you're still, you know, in your primary indication. If you perturb it too much, maybe you're in another indication or you have a tox issue. I mean, the time scales there are just crazy, right? By looking at that uncertainty and inflection in your human dose predictions, that might help you think about what doses and time points and what PK and PD you want to look at in the mouse model so you can go constantly forwards and backwards so you can get that right data in, in, in a mouse uh, model, then you can make do the same process in, let's say, like Sino, so you can make even better human dose prediction. So I, I, I don't think it's necessarily more data. I just think it's, it's the right data. Um, we do have to rely on things like numbers of cells and sites per cell or concentrations. A lot of that you can get from the public domain. But this is where the modeling is actually a strength because these are nonlinear differential equations. And that means by definition, there's a few parameters like initial conditions or rate constants or whatnot, where if you change a lot, then the output of the model won't change too much. But then there on the, on the, contra- on the contrary or, or contrast, there's gonna be some parameters. If you change just a wee little bit, the output of the ODEs can be drastically different, right? And that's, you know, we hear reference to the butterfly effect, right, in, in chaotic systems. In essence, that's what's going on here. So some for some parameters, let's say numbers of cells, right? You can range them from the lowest of the low from all of your literature search to the highest of the highest. And if you're ranging like 10,000 simulations, changing all these parameters, maybe the numbers of cells don't impact the uncertainty in the predicted human PKPD then that's a parameter that maybe you don't care so much about. Maybe there's another parameter like protein synthesis, right? Where subtle changes of that rate constant can give you drastically different outputs in your predicted human uh, PKPD, even very early on, 
that might be a critical experiment to do because it might impact go no go decisions it might impact how how much you have to perturb the system and so back to that engineered message being delivered by a lipid nanoparticle that might tell you okay how much payload do you need right how do you change the uh, i'm going to call it affinity or potency of that engineered message because you want to change that protein synthesis enough but not too much and maybe it's a drug maybe it's a not but it, it it helps you start to think about those mechanisms of how quickly can you get to that new protein synthesis rate how long does that protein synthesis rate stay at that desired effect and then how long does it take to come back so you now you can start thinking about multiple dosing and uncertainty so in, in, in a lot of ways it's it's not that much more if at all it's just thinking about your data collection differently. So John, um, maybe you could give us a little bit more insight into what the process is like for groups as their models are developed. Great, so at least with, with applied biomath, typically we, we work closely with our partners to, I wanna, I wanna say, I'm gonna take a step back and say, these are like very intensive PhD projects done in very short timescales. These are difficult. Typically, therefore, new drug concepts that no one knows what's going on are very little. So we have to work rapidly. We have to be careful. We have to build the right model. We can't do too much, but we have to answer the question. It's a function of their data and their timelines and their questions. So the first part is we need to understand how their drug works and the indication that they're in as quickly as possible. We have to understand the data that they have already generated, what data they plan on generating, and when that uh, data will be ready. And then any other important decisions, maybe there's an investor meeting coming up. Maybe there's an SAB or scientific advisory board coming up. Maybe they're going to a big conference and they need um, some, some presentation uh, that's based on modeling to help them uh, message uh, the value proposition of their therapeutic. When is the pre-IND? When is the IND? So that that first that first set of work is we're quickly taking a deep dive into what they're doing. And now it's a discussion where, well, we've worked on pieces, parts of this, you're the expert. And together we start drawing the model diagram or schema of what we're going to model, mathematically model. And what data do we think is the most important data that the model needs to recapitulate? Uh, so we, we trust the model predictions, frankly. Typically after that, um, we will make that in vitro model. Let's say this is for an IND. Um, typically we wanna recapitulate the in vitro model and we'll build the model based on mechanism uh, and just say, are we even close to predicting of what's going on? Maybe you have a couple different compounds or, or drugs. Maybe there's a competitor in there that you're looking at or, or a comparator. And by just changing the drug properties, can we recapitulate all of the data, you know, maybe within a half log or something like that without doing any parameter estimation? And then we fine tune with a little bit of parameter estimation. And then we will take that in vitro math model and ex vivo, if, if that data exists too, uh, and then translate to the mouse conditions. And we very carefully consider what's in the mouse math model. And we, using the in vitro or and, and or ex vivo math model, can we predict what the mouse data will be? 
And if we do, great. Um, sometimes we have to add some relevant biology. Um, maybe we had to add some relevant biology in, in the in vitro ex vivo, but now we'll make the same step to a, a, a Sino model. And we follow the same iteration. The team together with us, our, our partners, will through the whole process see what assumptions go into the models. They'll see how the model development is going, what parameters are in there, where the model is, is, is fitting and predicting the data well and where it's not. And together, we're, we're talking about what goes into the model to make it better and better and better until you know, we're making those first in human dose predictions. Typically, we'll show human dose predictions almost through the whole process. It's just not ready for an IND yet. Uh, and, and then during that you know, penultimate milestone, we will make those human dose predictions. There'll be questions. We'll do another round, and then we'll be ready to uh, write the, the model development process summary in a report so our partners can make reference to that in their IND, for example. So whether that's for the IND or when we're very early or even coming in in the clinic, we tend to follow a process similar to that. Sometimes we change the order. Let's say you're in the clinic. You know, maybe we don't care about the Sino and mouse model anymore. We might just care only about an in vitro assay and the real human data because human data obviously trumps mouse. But it's we try to work very carefully with our partners to make sure we're asking, we're answer, addressing their questions on their project timescale. Great, John, thanks for that answer. I mean, that really kind of um, you know, helps me and I think the audience understand uh, the process a little bit better. So the next question I have is about the FDA and that they, they have endorsed model-informed drug development or MIDD. What does this mean for the integration of modeling into the uh, R&D? So what, you know, what I'm stating is, is my opinion. I wouldn't necessarily say it's applied biobath's opinion and it's certainly not the FDA's opinion, right? This is my opinion. I think that the FDA is expecting better mechanistic dose predictions. I think they are seeing as more companies are in INDs and submissions and communicating with the FDA that there are better human dose predictions, more accurate dose predictions, not just the means on PKPD, but also you know the variability and uncertainty. This is this they. And, and more and more of these are being submitted, and this has been all been published. It's getting more and more important. And the FDA itself, they are investing more in mechanistic modeling. And there's different flavors of mechanistic modeling. I think if companies don't do their own mechanistic modeling, I think they're going to have a harder time working with the FDA. I think the FDA might do their own dose predictions eventually, if not now. If it was my company, I would do the modeling because I'd have more time to do it and I could consider more biology, I, I think that's going to be critical. That said, there certainly have been publications and, and Applied Biomath subscribes to this model-informed drug discovery and development, MID cubed, where if you're going to do this modeling, and we're thinking of this as an engineering approach, where we're trying to incorporate as many data sets as we can that are relevant to make better drugs, to get to the clinic maybe faster, maybe justify a higher starting dose where it's safe and, 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 and relevant. You can save a lot of time and money, but ultimately, ultimately, I think you're going to maximize the value of that therapeutic because you're going to more, most likely or more likely have a successful clinical trial. And that's going to be great for return of investment and also help the patients. I also think you will have lower failure rates. 
So you didn't wait for one reason or another, maybe it wasn't the right drug. Maybe it wasn't optimal. Maybe you didn't have the right clinical trial design. Maybe it didn't go into the right patients. Mechanistic modeling can help with all of these points. Not all the time, not all the points, right? There's no such thing as math magic, but it can certainly help you make better decisions. And if there was a therapeutic that shouldn't have gone into the clinic, you just saved a lot of time and money, really lost opportunity time, right? That's huge for companies. You're more likely to have a good return of investment, also huge for companies um, and the patient's. And if we reduce these late stage attrition rates, I'm hopeful that as a society, maybe we could start reducing drug prices, you know, and still have the world's leading R&D by still being able to pay for our scientists and the research because there were fewer late stage failures. And even in the clinic, because there still will be failures because you don't really know if a target is efficacious until you get into the right patient population. If the drug fails, you're more confident it's because the target is not efficacious. And it wasn't a question of, I, did I tr design the trial correctly? Did I dose high enough and often enough to test my proof of clinical concepts? Did I go in the right patient subgroup? Did I think about the, the, the biomarkers or the, or the safety correctly, right? It's, if it fails, you're, you're like, I, I think I know why it failed, right? So now maybe you don't, you're reducing the other rounds of maybe phase two or phase three. So it's, 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 it could be, it could be drastically important, the MID3. So John, maybe, you know, in the, in the last few minutes, you could explain a little bit how you think this might work for cell and gene therapy. Yeah, I, I talked about that briefly. And in, in essence, it's all the same questions, but even more complex. If you have a cell therapy, what do you mean by dose? What do you mean by PK? Because cells, some of them are replicating, right? Some of them are dying. How do you think about steady state, right? How do you think about change in phenotype? Um, how do you think about PD, right? Are you counting on your new engineered cells to change cytokine synthesis or change um, and how those cytokine differences can impact the balance of Treg and T effector cells, which could impact TILs, which could impact tumor growth inhibition or direct cell killing or in sickle cell disease, you know, you're, you're thinking about how your engineered platelet might help these patients who are suffering, right? The questions are even more difficult. So it's even more critical to do, in my opinion, this mechanistic modeling. It's in the same with gene therapies, right? How much do I have to put in? How much do I have to perturb the system? How long do I have to wait to see the PD, right? These are hard mechanistic questions on the therapy side, but also on the biology side. And I'm not to say you can't do all of this without mechanistic modeling, but then the combinatorial complexity and cost of doing all the experiments that you might have to do or the dosing that would have to happen in humans, it just, gets, it just gets more and more expensive. And now you have all this data that's complex and nonlinear. How do you tease it all together to understand what's going on and tell a story? Because at the end of the day, you have to help patients and you have to tell a story and 
and clinicians have to use this new therapy, right? And this is this is none of this is a trivial trivial task. Well, John, uh, obviously we've covered a huge amount of ground today. We really appreciate that uh, you provided some amazing insights into this mechanistic modeling, and I think it's uh, something our audience is uh, going to be really interested in. Obviously, most of our audience is in this space, and this is something that uh, I think they're going to want to know more about. Um, so, again, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. Hopefully we'll see all of you at our next GenCast episode. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Wigaliskas.